Hello and welcome back to the podcast. This is another episode in our series. It's kind of like a little bit of a strand this year, which we're sort of loosely calling ethics of teaching, I suppose, you know, being a little bit more thoughtful about your teaching. We have another guest down the line who is uh, one of our school mentors and school colleagues who is from the music specialism. So I'm feeling I'm feeling in my happy place now. <laughs> so uh, hello to Rachel Morgan Jones. Hello. <laughs> Welcome, Rachel. Um, I think Hi. probably the, the first most important question is tell us a bit about your background and, and what you're going to be talking about today and why you've got a passion for that. Hmm. OK, so I've worked as a teacher for over 20 years, most of that time um, as a head of department. And I've worked in three schools that have had a significant proportion of ethnic minorities. I've absolutely loved teaching in this environment. It's been so inspiring to be working in these cultures. And I guess I'm really passionate about it because I think there's quite a large number of schools out there who are totally unaware of this wonderful culture that we have in some of our inner cities. Wonderful. And and, and I guess, conversely, we've got a, a lot of teachers out there who are working in settings which we wouldn't describe as very culturally diverse, but we've got, we're living in times now, I'm, I'm pleased to say, where there's a real kind of movement and emphasis on inclusion on diversity on decolonizing the curriculum so i think you know this is one of the many reasons why we felt it really important to get people like yourselves with this kind of expertise onto the podcast so we've got we we mainly serve new teachers so trainee teachers although we do have listeners who might be experienced and have been in 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 the profession for a long time but I wanted to start out with kind of some of these maybe fears that teachers out there from whatever stage they're at in the profession or maybe even kind of unconscious biases that they might hold that might prevent them from creating a really diverse curriculum and, and making sure that their practice is really inclusive what are your thoughts on that? Um, I think you have to be aware of the community around you and um, the country that you're teaching in, the region. If you take the previous school that I worked in, for example, there were over 50 languages spoken. There was about 70% 70 of children spoke English as a second or additional language. Ethnic minorities made up 81% of the school. The largest minority groups were Bangladeshi, Pakistani, Somali, and the white British group took up about 18%. The smaller groups included children from across the Middle East, North Africa, Syria, Eastern Europe, and there there were very few atheists in the school, in fact, and the majority of religion was Islam. Between about 60 or 70%, in fact, um, were Muslim. And there were some other groups of Sikhs and Hindus and Catholics. Now, that is a, a significant number of ethnic minorities and lots of different cultures there. But they are, you know, citizens of our country. And you, you need to be aware of um, exactly what's in your classroom because actually when you're planning and preparing which, whichever subject it's for, you have to take into consideration religion, culture and language. Mm-hmm. And obviously then that will uh, affect the way you plan, the way your pedagogy plays out in the classroom. So, I mean, gosh, what what an incredible and, and wonderful array of kind of diversity in, in your previous setting. 
I guess a, a novice teacher coming into that might might harbour a fear of or how am I possibly going to cater to all of those pupils so what would you say to that? I I think I think it's natural and I do come across teachers who feel a little bit like that and there would be a tendency to bring world music into the curriculum as a sense of tokenism but just being very aware of the population in your local community and so on and really understanding getting to know your children is key to understanding what is going to make them tick in the classroom. So I have put um, the, all those cult- cultural backgrounds into kind of three main areas to take into consideration. So there's the Islamic tradition, the Western classical tradition and the oral tradition. So if you look at the Islamic tradition, you uh, might come across children from North Africa, Middle East, Pakistan, those countries above Pakistan, like Afghanistan, and those children are very likely to be Muslim. And Islam, you have to remember, is a multicultural, cross-continental religion. So there will be a broad ranges, a broad range of approaches to studying music and um, the feeling about music. So the most conservative denomination doesn't allow music at all, um, uh, the engagement of music. And the reason for that is because within the Sharia law, music is seen as being within a very negative context, for example, prostitution and gambling. So there are some very conservative Muslims who don't believe in engagement in music at all. The mainstream belief is that music is absolutely fine, studied in the educational context, although it's only the very liberal Muslims who will consider taking uh, music onto key stage four or key stage five. And maybe um, within the, the kind of liberal groups, you would expect the third, fourth plus generation immigrants. So that's the the one group to be quite mindful of. Then the second group is the Western classical tradition, which is the group that really embraces music and probably the one that you're most acquainted with, Australia, America, Britain. And these musicians will be very used to listening to music in the house. They might study an instrument and they learn music through notation, maybe an orchestral or band instrument, and they might be part of a band. So that's what would be the music associated with that group, that British group I talked about earlier. And then there's that third group, oral traditionalists. So those world musicians that maybe learn an instrument that um, has been passed down from generation to generation. They learn by ear and improvisation, say, um, features very heavily in it. So those, I would say, were the three main groups. And there are kind of considerations and balances in order to to kind of cater for, for those three groups. I was going to say, Rachel. I mean, you can you can, as a, a often classically trained musician, as as a new music teacher, you can probably kind of get your head around the idea of moving away from you know treble clefs and dots and sticks and music notation to kind of embrace the huge number of traditions in the world that do their music uh, through an oral um, transmission. How do you kind of get going with a group who who believe that music is actually, you know, forbidden and unlawful and against their religion? Because, you know, if you're, if you're new to the classroom, you might be worried about getting them to sit down and stop talking and listen to you. And, and the thought that <laughs> you might actually be transgressing their religious beliefs might be a, a bit of a I worry. I know. Well, the... 
When it comes to that group, they are not very uh, used to listening to music in the house. And I would say... Firstly, the mainstream belief is that music is fine in an educational context. And I can tell you that um, within pupil voice over the years and pupil voices taken with our external partners, um, the feedback is really positive and they enjoy music within the classroom. So don't be don't be frightened about that at all. Yes, I have come across the odd pupil here and there that is uh, coming from that conserv- very conservative background but it just means having some conversations um, maybe with the parents sometimes and saying well actually music is part of the school curriculum and you you do have to embrace it and that it, after you've got had that initial conversation it's fine and I've never had a, a problem after that and again you know you do find some liberal um, Muslims who will take music forward to key stage four but the main thing to remember is that it you know, music is enjoyed in the classroom by children from these cultures. I think there needs to be a sensitivity. And if you're going to be working in a school where there's a a, a very large percentage of of pupils who follow a faith, and no matter what it is, could be a Catholic school, for example, you would be very careful in terms of the music that you're sharing with them. A lot of music these days are very sexualized, and you'd be careful anyway not to share things that are really explicit. But you would then probably find an opportunity to introduce more classical music into your schemes of learning. And I think that it's fair to say that um, the schemes of learning that have developed over the years have a really broad range of music with quite a generous amount of classical music in. And that's, um, that's something really positive, I think. So stepping back from this, because I think you, you, you've you said some really interesting things already, Rachel, about the kind of steps that we can take. And I just wanted to shine a light on, on some of those and thinking with my with my uh, my eye on um, the range of subject practitioners that we might be speaking to and practitioners from different phases. Kind of step one from what I can tell from what you've said is to really get to know and understand the range of cultural backgrounds that your school serves get to understand it and then look to your curriculum look to cultural traditions within your your subject or or field with a view to kind of scrutinizing your curriculum as it stands and you know maybe you can ask yourself some really searching questions then how diverse is my curriculum at this stage is that is that right yes totally and you know remember that there might be children from all over the world in your school and although I've talked about that group that's not really used to listening to music there are children that come from other traditions that can really enrich in the lives of everybody else in the classroom and be really inspiring so for example if you if I were to speak to you about Eastern Europeans for example they're a really interesting group I find I've had children from Bulgaria Romania Slovakia the Czech Republic and most of those children have come from the Roma tradition which is the travelers um, community and um, within that community I mean they really do embrace music and enjoy it but there are some families that come from very um 
they have a really strong musical uh, tradition within the family, lots of music professionals. So if you speak to these children, they will know maybe an accordion player, saxophonist, violinist, um, somebody who plays the dulcimer even, and they bring with them a really incredible rich musical culture. Um, Again, the oral tradition and very complex music. So these children will be able to play by ear, they can improvise. Within that music, there's some fantastic fluid structures, really fast-moving harmonies and complex bass lines. And it's quite incredible to understand this, but even though they come from Europe, many of them come from a place where they've been persecuted and treated as second-class citizens. So you will be wanting to plump up their self-esteem. And if you find that they're really embracing music, then you can let them inspire others in the class. So that's one group of musicians that I, I thought would be really interesting to bring to light. And of course, I, the, the the dilemma in all of this is I, I'm really interested in what you said there about, you know, pupil voice and working with parents and, and you know, really acknowledging that, as you say, the rich kind of cultural traditions and background that they might have in your subject and bring that in. But how do you then move them into territory where they are more open to explore other cultures traditions you know how do you you know in in your planning and in your in your pedagogy encourage that um treading into into new challenging waters Hmm. i think it's about having an expectation and having a very nurturing um environment so we have a really broad range of music that we explore in the curriculum and for example in year seven at the end of year seven we introduce children to nasheeds now nasheeds come from um, the islamic tradition they are um, known as poems that children recite and within the poems are are words to help them worship allah so we actually expect everybody to learn the nasheeds and we transpose uh, transcribe it rather onto keyboard and we all sing in arabic together and it's just kind of taken as an expectation. Nobody says anything. And I think having an expectation of of exploring and embracing all of these cultures is really, really important. That's really helpful. It's so it's so good to hear you articulate it in that way. And I think particularly for our, our novice teachers, it's those kind of clear, concrete things that they can actually do and, and setting those expectations and hearing you say, you know, that that's kind of a, a, a minimum thing that you need to be factoring into your planning and, and creating that culture in your classroom is really probably, I would imagine, helpful for them to hear. This is really interesting as well, actually, isn't it? We had um, as a guest on the podcast recently, Elizabeth Elizabeth McGregor, who's an academic from Sheffield University, and she was talking to us about the English national curriculum. And we know things are quite different over there to in Wales. And she's written a really interesting article that kind of really kind of takes to task this idea they have coming from the government over there that we sort of bring pupils on through handing over this sort of western cultural capital you know the great composers and all of that kind of thing which is controversial even over there but this kind of approach you're talking about here it's it's a 
sort of almost like a direct rebuke to that, isn't it? That 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 isn't necessarily the only way we can we can bring our pupils on and help broaden their minds and all the rest of it. And actually, the pupils have got a very nice cultural capital of their own. Thank you very much. Without us yes. kind of coming at them with ours initially. Yeah, and do you know what is, you've made me think about? Actually, is um, how ingrained it is in our curriculum that we are listening to these composers and, and composers of the Western classical tradition. And it's really, really important to be aware of specifications and maybe competition guidelines that are really largely written for uh, children who are of the classical tradition. So, for example, if you had a look at um, the specification um, in Wales for Music GCSE, the performing criteria um, speaks very heavily about accuracy and a piece is judged on accuracy. And if you think about the oral tradition, actually the success of a performance depends very heavily on fluency rather than accuracy so you could have improvisations you could have very fluid structures and your performance is determined by how the audience are responding to your music so you were led by the audience and that could be the length of the piece for example if you have um, an audience that's really enjoying your music then you will play for a longer period of time and you will you'll play with them with the dynamics and depending what instrument you're on and then you might put some improvisation in and you might repeat some patterns that you've you've heard that they've you can tell that they've enjoyed so the the success of a performance for an oral tradition musician is is just completely different to, to the way we judge music um, for classical musicians. So if you do have children who take GCSE music, it's really important, These ch- the children from the oral tradition, that is, if, you, if they're taking GCSE music, it's really important that you stay true to your fantasy authenticity of these instruments and let them express themselves in performance in the way they want to so the specification is there to to be to be talked about you can um, talk to your examiner and I have done this in the past so that you can negotiate and compromise ways of submitting the the candidate's work so it's really important that you do this and I've, I've also had to do this so for example when um, putting children into the earth so I've had to for example I had a doll player a couple of years back and I had to provide a score they were absolutely insistent they had to provide a score because that's what they're used to but I provided a score but I didn't show the score to the child so I had to transcribe his doll music which is incredibly complex the time signatures can be maybe 27 8 then uh, move to 4 4 back to 15 8 and so on it's incredibly complex but I put all the rhythms that this child was going to use in the piece and then I had the conversation with the the judge and I said this child is going to play these rhythms probably in that order that might not be there may be some improvisation between the patterns and the structure is going to be uh, fairly fluid and and what's most important to this instrument is they're very fluent and projected very well so you have to have these kind of discussions with the examiner and um, competition judges so that children have access to the curriculum and full access to the curriculum and also so that our community can enjoy and understand um, our world musicians. 
It's fascinating hearing you talk about this, actually, Rachel, because as an exercise, I think it would be a really useful thing for all teachers to look at their exam board specification through that lens, looking, you know, knowing everything they know about their, their pupils, which, as we said, is one of the first important steps, and then looking at that criteria very very closely and something that I've done recently for for drama is just look at the set texts and look at you know just from a gender perspective how many you know who who are the writers um you know how representative uh, are the writers how representative are the are the stories that they tell and you know that would be a good use of your time I think as as a new teacher or even as a seasoned professional sitting down with your departmental team to have these conversations with a view to speaking to exam boards yeah absolutely and um, there has to be a balance you know I think that you really need to get to know the instruments really well and that might it might be it might mean that you um, talk to the parents it might be an instrument that you're just not aware of you might come across you know I've come across instruments that I haven't uh, known before I've come across South American instruments that I haven't known and I've had to go and talk to the family and really understand how it's played and do my own research on it but I do that so that I can keep very true to the authenticity of the instrument because what I don't want to end up doing and I think we've got a, a real social obligation here um, what I don't want to do is end up changing a musical tradition just to fit into some criteria that has been set by Western classical uh, musicians. It strikes me, Rachel, that thinking back now, I've placed a lot of students with you and the thing that's always made your department kind of really unique has been that while you've you've remained absolutely kind of true to music, the subject, and it's all of its kind of variations across the world, you've always been about the whole child as well, you know, because obviously, as you've said, quite a lot of the people that you teach have some pretty, you know, difficult backgrounds. They may have arrived in the country from some really traumatic kind of things. And you've never lost sight of, of that, that you're there for the for the child and to bring the child on, even while remaining true to the subject. Thinking about the new curriculum now, thinking about the fact that we're moving towards this idea of, you know, purposes which define what people should be like by the time they leave us. Do you think... Do you think this is going to help, you know, do that more in schools? Do you think we're moving in the right direction? Does it does that make you happy? Yes, I do, and I and I I must admit I've been moving away from the national curriculum for for many years now in order to make sure that children are fully exploring their own skills and developing what they need to and learning how to transfer their skills. So what I do like about the Welsh curriculum is that there is this assessment, sorry, there is a climbing frame, if you like, within the assessment. So you can, for example, begin teaching a performing uh, module with a class. And when children acquire a certain number of skills, a certain amount of skills, and they're happy, they might feel as though they want to transfer those skills into maybe arranging or improvising, or they might want to just they might just feel gosh I really enjoy in this performing and I want to increase the depth of and of the knowledge and understanding that I'm acquiring here so I really like this climbing frame idea that they have in the Welsh curriculum because actually that is going to um, help us to embrace all the different cultural backgrounds that we have in our, in our class and again 
you need to remember the balance. You can't always let children dictate exactly which route they're going to take when you've got this obligation to maybe help children how to, to read and to, to speak English. So, for example, if I, if I go back to the Eastern European children, for example, they probably want to go to explore improvisation and arranging all, all day long. But actually, you've got an obligation to help them learn how to read. So bringing notation in to the classroom was going to be really important here. So you can, you can teach them how to transfer these skills. And when you teach children how to read notation, what you're asking them to do is to look up the symbol on the score and they're interpreting the, the symbol and then they come out with the outcome. And it's exactly the same kind of thing when you're teaching children language, when you're teaching them how to read. There's a word on the page, which is effectively a symbol that they interpret and then they and then they speak it. And it's it's that kind of discipline of reading for Eastern European children that can be very, very important. So... The Welsh curriculum will allow children where where you need them to. They they will they will be able to lead the way, and pupil voice will become a very important part of the lessons. But there'll be times you'll want to take over as a teacher and say, right, okay, I know that you've explored those particular skills, but let's look at the the what's available to us on this assessment climbing frame. You know, you can transfer that skill and. Be- and do this and instead. So I love the flexibility of the Welsh curriculum. Coming back to the point that you made there about language, which again I, I found uh, fascinating, the links between uh, notation and learning to, to read. You have got some really good advice, I think, about working with pupils who may have little or no English. What advice would you give to our, our students who find themselves working with those learners? I I think it's first and foremost you have to have a really nurturing department and yeah I mean the the children who have come to the schools that I've worked in I've come across refugees who've come from war-torn zones and they have uh, many of them experienced the most horrific circumstances some of them are willing to speak to you about their their circumstances, the, the the history of how they got here, and others aren't, and and that's absolutely fine. You need to respect their their right not to talk about it as well. Some of them have little or no English, as as you were saying. That's that's true, and um, you have to make a very comfortable environment for them. When you're speaking and communicating with them, I would um, suggest, yeah, using kind of your hands to express yourself is important, but um, speaking very slowly is important, repeating phrases and rephrasing things so that they can hear the same thing being said in a different way, that can help. And use their name to comfort them as well as distract them. So, for example, if a children, if a child um, who doesn't speak much English is is sitting in your class, is very very quiet. Sometimes you need to kind of make sure they 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 are being good, maybe, but you need to make sure that they're engaged in the lesson. So so use their name often. Use plenty of prompts on the board, just writing out terms and new words that you're that you're covering. And a lot of the time with these EAL classes, I spend a little bit of time at the beginning just speaking um, very basic sentences, asking them um, how they are feeling today, what did they do yesterday, and that will make them 
uh, help them feel um, really comfortable in the class. If um, they are new to the school and new to the country and new to the la- completely new to the language, I would probably sit that child if possible, with another child that speaks the the same language. It's not always possible with maybe over 50 um, languages spoken in the school, but that's also something that you can do to to help them. Um, Because it's a music class, you have to be really careful about sudden noises. Um, They might be quite jumpy. Maybe they've come from a war zone where where they've heard um, bombs um, and really sudden noises and been woken up in the middle of the night to, to seek safety and so on. So you have to really create a a very nurturing and comfortable environment. But just speaking slowly will actually help them feel kind of not rushed and uh, a little bit more relaxed. Rachel, that is an enormous treasure trove of useful (laughs) stuff, both on a sort of generic level, just for kind of any teacher. And there's some really lovely specific stuff there to do with the subject, which obviously if you're a music teacher, that's really handy. But if you teach something else, it's a nice exercise to kind of take that and put that into your own context and see what that looks like. Thank you so much. There's there's just so much to go on there. Now, we do always give our guests a little bit of homework. And I did, I know I did do this, um, our regular short slots. Do you have uh, something interesting, which could be in any medium and doesn't have to be about education, that, you, that you'd like to share with our listeners so that they've got a goodie to take away? Um, well... I I was thinking maybe of a good book. Now I don't I'm not heavily into fiction, so I I really really love current affairs and politics. I'm reading a book on civil rights at the moment and learning about Booker T Washington. And I've ordered a book on the hostile environment. And I really, really like to just keep up with current affairs. And I think it's actually important to do as an educationalist, because whatever's happening in the news, and if you just look at the pandemic at the moment, it will ultimately um, have an effect on the educational policy nationally, regionally and locally so I think my tip there is to just be really just have your eyes and ears open to what's happening in the news that's really good advice thank you Rachel um you've already given us a hell of a lot of things to try but one of our our short slots is about uh, something practical to try out in the classroom did you have something in addition to all those wonderful things that you've already given us <laughs> I think my best tip and this would be for for behavior actually is just to be lovely to your pupils and have a real really good sense of humor around them um, because actually that can help maintain a really nice kind of light and calm atmosphere and I think that's my best tip it's like it's almost the tip you don't want other teachers to know about because it works so well (laughs) <laughs> you know, loveliness can be underrated can't it so, <laughs> in this world of data and examples yes. and things like that loveliness can be yeah. very underrated okay and um well-being tips how would you keep up with your own well-being what can you share with our listeners on that front well i went on a very interesting senior leadership course a few years ago and i did a module on well-being now up until that point 
you might catch my my files, my books, my laptop in anywhere in in the house. And this is a tip about um, work and workspace and living space. I take my laptop up to bed with me. I'd have a notebook by my bedside cabinet and um, be doing all sorts of things all the time. But what I learnt is that actually, if you have these things around you in the home, um, they can generate kind of thoughts in your head and tasks. So what I've done since is I've had areas in the house where I refuse to have any of my schoolwork one being the bedroom so I can just go up I've got my Kindle next to me and I can watch Netflix before I go to sleep and I I just feel it's um, a really great way to make sure that there are spaces that allow you to to look after your well-being that's a great tip. We, we haven't had that one so far. And this is the thing, some of these, they, they seem like such small and, and obvious things, but the amount of us that fall into those traps, I, I would agree with you on that front. I often have, you know, things that just distract me from actually just spending a bit of time having some, some me time, you know? And when, when we start to kind of declutter our lives like that and have these separate spaces, they can make huge differences. So thank you for sharing that, Rachel. Okay. We'd like to say say a big thank you to you um, for coming on to talk to us about this, and no doubt we'll, we'll probably be in touch again to talk more. Because uh, the more you 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 read and the more you get to know this, I think that there are there are more conversations to be had in this vein, and a lot of work to be done across um, across the UK to make sure that our curriculum and our approaches are more inclusive. So thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. <laughs> And we hope we'll have uh, much more in this sort of ethical strand this year. This is a a worthy addition to our collection, so thank you. And we will be back uh, in a fortnight with some more things for your ears. But in the meantime, take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. That was Emma and Tom's PGC podcast, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. The special guest this episode was Rachel Morgan-Jones. We hope this discussion about one specific subject area helps you think about what this might look like in your own area of specialism. Thanks again to Rachel for taking the time. We'll be back in a fortnight. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching.